Blog Talk Radio. You are listening to Help for HD Live, the first podcast created for families living with Huntington's and juvenile Huntington's disease. Don't forget to find us on iTunes, Blog Talk, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. You can also search over 500 archived episodes and other projects at helpforhd.org. To watch us in person, find Help for HD TV on YouTube and subscribe and ring the bell for notifications on new content. Help for HD Live is going on air in 5, 4, 3, 2, Hello, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in to Help for HD Live. This show is made possible because of a grant from Teva Pharmaceuticals, uh, Neurocrine Biosciences, and the Griffin Foundation. I'm your host, Lauren Holder, and today we have Dr. Sarah Hernandez and Dr. Jeff Carroll on. Um, you should know them from HD Buzz, or if you've been to any conventions, um, you, especially the last one, you would have met them. Um, I have, since most people probably know Dr. Jeff Carroll, we're going to have Dr. Sarah Hernandez introduce herself first, and then we'll have Jeff go. Thank you guys for joining me today. Sure. Yeah. Happy to be here. Thanks for having us, Lauren. Um, My name is Sarah. I started studying Huntington's disease with Dr. Leslie Thompson at the University of California, Irvine. Um, And so I did my postdoctoral work with her, and I stayed on as a project scientist And very recently, I started transitioning um, to the nonprofit sector. So I've been working with the Hereditary Disease Foundation as their director for research programs. So kind of wearing both hats still at the moment. Many hats. (laughs) Um, So hi, uh, I'm Jeff Carroll. Uh, I'm a HD guy. I um, uh, am an HD family member, uh, but also an HD scientist. I uh, had a lab uh, in Bellingham, Washington at Western Washington University, but just recently, as of about two weeks ago, started a new lab at the University of Washington in Seattle, uh, where I'm talking to you from my very empty new office. That's awesome. Thank you. Um, Sarah, aren't you, aren't you from an HD family too? Yes. Yeah. I'm from an HD family. So when I was about 12, I found out that my grandmother died from Huntington's disease. Um, and that, that honestly, that was like the moment that kind of decided my career trajectory for me <laughs> because I just, um, especially when I was 12, not to date myself, but this was definitely pre Google. So I couldn't just go on the internet and like hdbuzz.net anything. Right. So I had to like go to the library and get one paragraph answers on things. And so it kind of set me out on a trajectory to, to learn a lot more, which I have done. Yeah. You would have learned even more if you'd come and work with me, Sarah. <laughs> I've been in, uh, in the mouse you. world. <laughs> um, yeah, it's interesting because, you know, you think about, like you mentioned 12, I was 15 when I found out and you're right, mm-hmm. there wasn't, there wasn't an HD buzz to, to give information. It was really hard to find information and the information wasn't necessarily um, as positive should I say it was a lot more scary um, as you were looking at it at the age of 15 um, so yeah I, I am super grateful for HD buzz I don't know what I would do without you guys because um, I literally go to you for everything before I make a decision on anything so um, that's awesome thanks Lauren yeah of course um, so let's talk about 
Let's talk about HD as a whole body disease. Um, this is something that I have been hearing and I kind of wanted to address when we talk about HD as a whole body disease, what that means um, and does HD affect other parts of the body that we need to know about? Um, so just kind of looking at it from that point of view. Um, great, yeah, so you're right, Lauren, that you know, this is increasingly being appreciated, not just in Huntington's disease, but in, in many different neurodegenerative diseases, like even more common ones like Parkinson's disease, which is now appreciated to have lots of links between the brain and the rest of the body. Um, and in Parkinson's in particular, there's a lot of people think that some of those links might help actually drive the disease and actually be part of what, what makes the brain sick. Um, I would say that we're not quite there with HD to, you know, the punchline for me is that these things probably exist, but I don't, I don't think we're, we have evidence of that caliber that we have to worry about that kind of stuff in HD yet. Um, but it's certainly something people are looking at. Um, but I would say that like, it's, it's very clear that there are symptoms outside the brain in HD. Um, and they vary from, from person to person a little bit more than the brain symptoms, which are pretty consistent. Like the part of the brain that's most impacted in HD is, is consistently affected from person to person. But, you know, HD families know this, like it's generally true that people with HD struggle to keep on body weight, but then there are people who have the opposite problem, right? So, so there's no like definitive set of symptoms, but in general, I would say on average, it's true that people with HD have a hard time keeping weight on. And that can have all kinds of other problems. Um, uh, there have been, you know, subtle differences in, in in muscle function that have been examined in the lab. Um, there are subtle changes in the way that the liver functions that can be measured with lab tests, but are so subtle that they don't. A doctor doesn't need to do anything about them. So that we have to discriminate, I think, between like things that are different in HD people's bodies and whether they can be measured, which is sometimes we have these very accurate tools in medicine and science, but then also do they matter? And so like things like body weight probably really do matter because they really impact people's brain function if, they, if they're struggling to, to, to have enough body weight. Um, these other things that I mentioned, like the subtle liver changes and stuff, interesting science, probably not something that an HD person needs to worry about generally. Um, Sarah, I'm bothering. Do you want to talk about Huntington being everywhere? Yeah, yeah. So um, I think what's super interesting about Huntington's, right? Like it mostly affects neurons and it mostly affects the brain, but the gene that leads to Huntington's is expressed in every single cell in the body. Um, so it's not just in neurons or the brain, as Jeff mentioned, it's in every, it's all over the body. Um, but I think also what researchers are beginning to appreciate is not just that there are changes in other organs like the liver and even the heart, um, which I do want to talk about a little bit, but also other cell types in the brain. Um, so usually researchers primarily focus on neurons because that's where we see the largest effect. These are the cells that are really shrinking and causing the degeneration in the brain. But there are a bunch of other cells in the brain. Actually, neurons aren't even the most abundant cell type. There's another cell type called glia. Um, and even the cell types uh, where there's very few of that cell type within the brain, something called endothelial cells, which make the vasculature in the brain, those seem to be having an effect on the disease. And so we recently went to a, a conference for HD um, run by HDF, and there was work presented by Miriam Hyman from MIT. And she showed that when she used a virus to reduce expression of Huntington only in these endothelial cells, so the cells that make the vasculature within the brain, she was able to suppress HD-associated deficits in mice, which sounds complicated, right? But basically, she put these mice, these mice on this little rotating rod that looks like the, the lumberjack thing that people try to stay on in the water. Um, 
And when she reduced Huntington only in this very small cell population, the mice got better on that test. And so that seems to suggest like maybe these cells aren't driving the disease, right? Like we, we truly think that neurons are driving the disease, um, but maybe they're participating in it. And if we can understand more about what's going on in some of the, these other cell types, particularly if they're easier to access, like neurons are deep in the brain, they're going to be difficult to get to, um, we might be able to have some effect on the disease. That is crazy um, and so, so interesting. And I'm, I'm glad you're getting ready to talk about the heart because that's the part that I've researched the most um, just with dad passing and, and what we experienced in that last year of his life. So I'm really interested to hear what you have to say about the heart since you, since you brought that up. But super exciting that, that we're finding that there are other cells involved. Um, I'm yeah. really- Yeah, and I'll- Oh, and one thing I wanted to just add on to, to that, Sarah, um, you know, those endothelial cells, the sort of vascular cells, they might, um, they might be much easier to reach, as Sarah said. And if in humans, and this is a big leap from where we are with the mouse studies, which were amazing, but mice, but if that could be validated, it's a lot easier to get to cells that are in the, in the, in a blood vessel than are, you know, a few inches away deep in the, in the brain tissue. So I, you know, I think access to the cells that need to get thing that Sarah brought up is I think probably not appreciated by non-scientists. I certainly didn't appreciate it until I started studying. Like, that's just like, oh, we know this gene is there and it causes the disease and it's bad. Let's get rid of it. But getting into the, the neurons, the brain is very, very hard. So any extra avenue we have to maybe like not have to go through that huge rigmarole. I mean, this is why people have intrathecal injections or spinal taps to have drugs like ASOs delivered because it's just so hard to get down there. So any anything that opens a chink in the armor that's easier to get to is a big deal. How did how did they come about like looking at the other cells for things like instead of just the neurons? How did that come about? Yeah, so I mean, there have been different models. Um, so specifically in vitro models, things like cells in a dish that have indicated these other cell types might be having a contribution to Huntington's disease. And so I think um, the Hyman lab at MIT built their studies upon those previous findings. <clears throat> and so she did something called single cell analysis uh, of the cerebrovasculature and the brains of people with and without HD. And so basically what she did was she took the brains and she analyzed the vasculature down to a single cell level. And I, I can't explain how impressive this is. I think this technique, first of all, I have to say I don't do it, so I can't really explain the science behind it, but I'm so impressed by it. I'm so impressed by people that can analyze this data, but it's the difference like taking like a giant clump of sand and being like, oh yeah, that sand's brown versus putting it under the microscope and being like, oh no, that's actually a little shell or that's a little piece of polished rock. <clears throat> and so you can start to get this resolution that you would completely miss by just looking at a brain sample. And so she used that type of single cell analysis to look at the cerebrovasculature in these brains. And she was saying like, oh, there's contributions from this cell type in the vasculature or this cell type or that cell type. And that really allowed her to get down to, oh, well, it might be the endothelial cells. These might be, have a really interesting signature. And then that's when she carried on the work from there. It's super fascinating. Yeah, that's <laughs> amazing. That's absolutely amazing. Um, Okay, uh, let's, we'll move on to, to heart. I, I could probably talk about what you're talking about for hours, but um, we'll move on to the heart. So you mentioned specifically something with the heart. Can you explain how HD affects that? 
Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe Jeff could talk too, because he actually looks at mice and I don't do mice at all. Um, but there have been- Your flies don't have hearts? <laughs> you know what? They don't even have blood. So no, I don't think they do. It's all open. <laughs> um, but there was work done in Bev Davidson's lab at CHOP in Philadelphia, uh, led by one of her former um, mentees named Dan Child, who showed that there's fibrosis in the heart. So basically extra scarring in the heart um, associated with HD. And then there's also been studies that are being done by Michelle Gray out of the University of Alabama at Birmingham, who is, this is really early work by her lab, but she's showing there might be rhythmicity issues. So maybe the way that the cells are beating and communicating. And so Jeff mentioned earlier, like a lot of these peripheral problems outside of the brain are certainly not things that people with Huntington's need to worry about. Um, but basically one of the reasons that people want to look at this now is because we have a plan, right? We plan to cure Huntington's disease. And when we cure it in the brain, we don't want people dying of a heart attack 20 years later, right? Or five years later or something. And so getting a better understanding of what Huntington's is doing in the entire body will really give us a leg up um, once we really figure out and nail down how to treat Huntington's in the brain. I'd take 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> Anyone around, right? Yeah. Oh, I think um, <laughs> yeah, and actually I was thinking as you were talking, Sarah, and sorry, this is a little separate from heart, Lauren, but um, but just something that's been, you know, scientists were like, we're like squirrels. We just get excited about the new thing. Like I, I've been reading a lot about Huntington and cancer. Uh, so, and just to contrast, like not all the things that happen in the body are bad. So there's this very interesting finding that people with Huntington's disease on average have less cancer than control people than subjects than their siblings that don't have HD. I, I'm so excited because I read about this too. So go ahead. Yeah, and, and I want to be careful because I, you know, people with HD definitely get cancer. And I don't want to say like, you're fine, go smoke, you know, like whatever. But like on average, if you look at people and you have to kind of correct, right? Because on average people with HD die sooner than people without. Um, but if you if you correct for that mathematically and you look at like how much cancer does a, this population get every year and you can do some fancy math to correct for the shortened lifespan of HD patients, it's about half in the studies that have been looked. So it's I sort of joke and I this is I'm an HD guy and I have a mutation so I can say this, but like if it wasn't for the whole like brain dying thing, like everyone would want HD because if, if something protected you from like 50% of your cancer risk, like everyone would do it. So if it's real, it's super interesting. And it just goes to show you that like, not all this stuff is bad. This gene affects cells all over the body. And those effects maybe weirdly in some cases could actually be beneficial. I also think it makes us better looking, but that's just me. <laughs> I hear it makes us smarter. So. Also smarter. Yes, that's true. Yeah, I heard that about the, what was it, the juvenile study that one of the things that they found where they were actually more intelligent. Um, and I was like, I'll take it. <laughs> yep, you take what you can get, right? <laughs> exactly. So Jeff, talk to me about the heart um, a little bit more and, and what Sarah was talking about. And because um, yeah. I in this part as well um, and have researched a little bit about the heart. Yeah, and I, I, maybe I'll maybe I'll contribute to that by saying that like, you know, so I wrote a review on some of these issues, like different parts, like we what, scientists say peripheral, and what we mean is that like central just means brain and spinal cord. So peripheral, if I say periphery, I just mean like outside the brain. Um, so like I wrote a review on peripheral effects of Huntington, so mutations effects on um, 
different cells and organs in the body. And there's some published literature that says that people with HD die of heart attacks much more frequently. But I dove into that literature and like, there's a bunch of references pointing every which way, but there's no actual like gold standard database that says, I just don't think there's that good of evidence. I think it's quite possible. And I think that there's some hints that people might have more heart disease with HD, but I, I will say that it's not definitive as far as I can tell. And of course, any one person can die of, of anything and lots of people get heart disease that don't have HD, right? So it's, you have to look really hard at these things. And I'll use this as a plug. So this is why scientists are so excited about observational studies like enroll HD, track HD, predict HD, because we can actually start to collect the numbers that you need to analyze these questions. You think about how common heart disease is, especially in, you know, US and, how, you know, obviously HD is rare, but like amongst the HD population, a lot of them just by chance are going to have heart disease. And so it's a very tricky, like, distinction to say there's more heart disease in this population compared to that population and so i think there's some really intriguing papers and the, the the what we call like the mechanism papers that sarah mentioned like how exactly or how precisely does heart function differ that's where we can use animal models to to, to really do things we can't do to people um all of those suggest that there might be something going on but i do just want to urge a little bit of caution and say that like I don't think there's like a gold standard reference to say that like there's more heart disease or less or whatever in an HD patient. So that's the kind of thing that I hope studies like enroll can, can really dig into. And I think another point I would add, right? Like Jeff mentioned, Huntington's is a relatively rare disease and people are very interested in studying the brain for obvious reasons. And to get human patient brain is very challenging, but to get any other tissue from someone who has died from Huntington's is almost impossible. And so when Jeff says the data just isn't out there, it's because the numbers aren't out there. People by and large aren't donating their whole bodies. And it's obviously morbid to think about this, right? Like, oh, I'm gonna die. Let me donate my body and my organs oh, no. to I, science. I, mean, I, I donated my dad's brain. So I like, I would have donated his whole body had I known that we could. Yeah, and I think, I think there's, um, like a disconnect, right? Like patients, I think they're willing to do this. I don't even think there's a repository set up for them to do this. We have brain banks for HD patients, but we don't have like this other organ system collection. And like Jeff mentioned problems with muscle. It would be great to have muscle samples, skin samples. You know, there's differences in the eyes of people who have Huntington's disease and corneal vision and things like this. It would be great to have all of these samples, um, but we just don't. And I don't think we have the repositories available. And so I think it, the lack of research doesn't speak to the fact that people aren't interested. It speaks to the fact that we don't have the sample numbers and we just can't look at it right now. And just to say that like, and I'm a mouse guy, so I'm gonna like, you know, give that kind of response right now, but this is why we use mice. This, so a lot of times, well, sometimes I'll hear from HD members and they'll say something like, quit trying to cure mice. Like, why do you guys keep messing around with mice? No one cares about mice. And it's like, I don't care about mice. <laughs> I've spent my whole life studying them. I don't, I only care about humans with HD. But as Lauren, as Sarah said, sorry, like I don't have access to hearts and whatever of human HD patients. And we have lots of mice that have the exact same genetic mutation. And there's things that we can do, you know, we're not cavalier with animals, but there's things that we can do to animals that we, you know, ethically can't do to humans. And so that's another another like reason for me people to understand like when they hear scientists study heart disease like Michelle Gray's study that that Sarah mentioned in mice, it it's not just because we like playing around with mice. It's it's because we have access to them in a way we don't have with humans for this kind of stuff. 
how how hard is it to get a repository though in order to be able to study those things because you would think if it's what we need we we would figure out a way to do it you know because as you mentioned it's really important to find out these things so i think a few people um so i know that blair levitt in vancouver um, and i think carson soft in germany have started collecting some more peripheral organs i think you know uh, medicine is conservative and like the people seeing hd patients are neurologists mostly and so it's like it's it's a little bit of like a culture shift to say that hey at autopsy maybe we should collect more and it's also just trickier and harder to keep it and it's more stuff and so it's a little bit of a cultural shift um and I, I think it's slowly happening and it's always a resource thing of like what do you spend your time and effort on um and obviously brains are worth it in hd um, but other organs haven't been seen to be up until kind of more recently yeah, and I think the part of it is like what Jeff said, this is very recent findings. We didn't know there were these changes in the heart or um, a lot of these peripheral organs very recently. And so I think it takes this culture shift that Jeff mentioned. So it takes the animal data first to show, yeah, this is really worth looking at. We really need to know what's going on in people to get that shift to medicine because it's a lot trickier to convince people to give you all of their organs than it is to be like, yeah, I just want to collect the hearts or intestines from mice or I'm already doing the brains. Why not? Right. Um, okay, Sarah, let's go back to eyes. You mentioned eyes. We'll go back to something that, you know, I'm sure people will be interested in knowing. <laughs> I should have read this literature before I open my mouth about it. <laughs> um, I know there are changes in the eyes. I, I don't think I can speak um, really more than that. I don't know, Jeff, do you know about eye changes in HD? I haven't followed it, but it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, so the Huntington protein has a lot of different jobs in the cell. Um, and a lot of those seem to like interact with energy production and needs. And the, the eye, especially the retina is one of the most like energy intensive parts of the body. Um, so it would not surprise me at all. There's certainly Huntington expressed there. It wouldn't surprise me at all if Huntington could have some role potentially via that modulating metabolism, um, which it certainly does. Um, and so yeah I, I, and i don't i haven't seen any published data that says that eyesight per se is different um but i don't know if anyone has looked yet <laughs> i haven't yeah, I mean, seen any published data i just know of people who complain of problems with their eyes and mm -hmm. i hear that all of the time just if memory serves and i could be wrong here i think it had more to do with the movement of the eye necessarily right. than mm -hmm. vision Right. But I, I, I should have read about that. Totally understand that. Um, now I want to go do some studies on eye function. <laughs> well, and I know the other thing that I researched was the gut and how important the gut is um, in HD. So, um, you know, I know that's a big focus as well right now. Yeah, I'm super. So I had a um, like a little pilot study that I was doing in Leslie's lab with one of my friends, Ryan Lim, where we were looking at the microbiome in mice. And um, it's something I'm super interested in, right? Like Jeff mentioned Parkinson's when we started this conversation. And there's this theory that some Parkinson's cases, like Parkinson's can be sporadic, that some of those cases start in the gut and that changes in the gut travel up the, the vagus nerve and go to the brain, this gut brain axis, uh, and might be contributing to Parkinson's in that way. And so um, there are other neurodegenerative diseases where there's this deep connection between the brain and the gut. And so we wanted to look at and see if in R6-2 mice, we could find if there's a dysregulation in the microbiome. Um, and that was kind of a side project that fell off my plate, but there are other people that are looking at this, like Ali Koshnin at Caltech, 
um, who's looking at it in mice, flies, people. Uh, so he's looking at it really across the spectrum of organisms and he's finding that there are differences. Whether those contribute to HD or not, we have to wait for the publication, uh, but it seems that there are differences and it could be really interesting, right? Like there are a lot of diseases where if you can change your microbiome, you can really change your health, have massive effects on your health. And so if you can even make some small incremental advancement in HD, it will be worth it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Not to be a uh, HD buzzkill here, but um, <laughs> <laughs> I just want to like jump off of what Sarah was saying because it, it's really interesting. So the, 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 I would say the, the neurological condition where um, gut brain axis besides Parkinson's that's been most studied is in autism. And um, I'm assuming Lauren, it's still recording so we can delete this part and then I'll just blather on. <laughs> Um, so in autism, there's been a lot of talk about, and there probably almost certainly is some link between gut microbiome health, but some of the early papers that came out were very strong about autism. This is mouse model work in autism, but they, they did what's called fecal transplants so they could like, quote unquote, cause autism in mice by, by messing with their microbiome. But then subsequent papers either couldn't replicate that at all or found much less extreme effects. So I just want to say that like, these fields are new. And as Sarah said, like the techniques are still developing. And so like then find someone finds out like, oh no, there was just like a contamination in that one mouse colony that like they thought was associated with autism, but it was just something funky there. So some of these things come out sounding really exciting and cool. And then in the end, they end up not being quite as important as we as we were worried or thought they were. Um, just to say, don't don't get too worried about you know your diet. Um, the other thing I was gonna say is this is really embarrassing because there is an eye function paper and it's by my friends and colleagues Jocelyn Pearl and uh, Sumi Jayadev uh, who's at C's patients at UW here um, so I should have remembered their paper but they did they did one of these like cool optical techniques where they could they could examine like the retina's response to light and they actually found enhanced responses in HD patients so like more sensitivity or like a higher response to light and that's kind of the thing it's like does that matter to those people in their daily life? Probably not. It's obviously not to the level of like they need some kind of treatment or something, but it might subtly affect how their eyes function because they're hyper responsive. And no one knew until um, these guys looked and published this paper in 2017. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I'll have to do more research on the eye part because I, I don't know a lot about it, but I've heard a lot of people say that their eyesight is affected in some way, whether it's blurry vision, movements in their in their eyes, whatever. Um, and I've even done studies where they've they've tracked eye movements um, or participated in studies where they tracked eye movements. So it's really interesting to me as well. It, I've also so, heard smell. People have said that their smell changes too, right? Like, and this one wouldn't surprise me because you have neurons in your olfactory bulb and things like that. I've not looked into it, but just speaking of senses that might change so, related to HD. Like, do things start smelling worse? What? <laughs> I think just different. Do you know anything about this, Jeff? No. I don't, but I'm going to go Google and realize there's papers <laughs> yeah, that I read five I mean, years I ago. They've, they've studied it. I mean, I do the smell test every single time I do a study. Um, oh, yes. That's why. Uh, because in a lot of diseases, anosmia is like a very, Parkinson's in particular is a, is sort of a preceding symptom and so retrospectively in Parkinson's if you look at people so in aging people's sense of smell tends to kind of decline anyway like less sensitive um, and in Parkinson's disease 
if you take people who have Parkinson's and look retrospectively at their smell, they, they lost their smell like much more severely on average than non-PD people. So it seemed like it was kind of like an early warning sin signal. Um, and I can't remember for HD. I will check because I, I should know this and I'm sure someone's published. They were making us do smell tests. Like I was like, why are we smelling? You know, they've got the little booklet and they can make you smell and mark. And I'm like, well, I'm, I don't understand that one. But it, 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 it's, yeah, it seems funny, but it's like in these other brain diseases, it's like a very distinctive symptom. So it's like, it's like a canary in the coal mine, you know, for brain dysfunction. Gotcha. Well, that's cool. Um, so as these things pop up, I'm guessing that HD buzz will continue to follow. And, and if anything significant shows, then it'll be reported. But, um, but I mean, do you think it's stuff, again, I know you, you cautioned on stuff, but do you think it's, it's worth people looking at um, if anybody is really interested in the research side of things, just as a lay person like I am, you know, just to keep an eye on it or um, not a big deal? What, do you, what are your thoughts on it? I think, I think the big deal is people being healthy. And I think, you know, I've talked to a million neurologists about this, and I am not a neurologist. So I'm not a real doctor. I want to say that very clearly. But I've watched a lot of real doctors talk about this, and I've had conversations with them about it. And what they say is that on, in general, there are patients that are metabolically healthier, right? They have lower blood pressure, better body weight. They're more in shape. I'm really feeling bad about this, right? As I'm saying this, because I do none of these things. Uh, like, those people tend to not just be better metabolically, but also to seem to do better neurologically. And so I think, I think what we should say is that when it comes to like, is there heart dysfunction? Is there eye dysfunction? All these subtle things might be happening. I would think for any individual patient, they're probably not like probably not that informative and not likely to cause problems they need to worry about. But that in terms of like brain body crosstalk, what we do know is that being healthier makes your HD a little bit worse, less bad. And that seems worth worthwhile message. And I'm going to go join the gym right after this. <laughs> um, I find that interesting too, because, you know, as we're talking about this and being healthy in general and, and genetic makeup and things, you know, you, everybody, especially as you look at like people who are in their fifties and their sixties, they have other conditions popping up at the same time, right? It's just the the time that it is usually the average and um but you look also at like people like me who have thyroid problems due to an autoimmune issue and and you wonder how it plays a role um in the hd how is it going to affect it is it going to make it worse does it not matter and those questions come up in my mind and and how i think about hd as a whole body disease um, not just what is it affecting but how is everything else affecting it um the you know how everything else affects hd so it's really good to hear um your thoughts on it and just the fact that yeah being healthy is is key um and we should be working towards that whether there's hd or not yeah and you know it, i've heard i've heard a number of stories and again this is anecdotes not medical advice but you know i've heard you know, in, in, in later stage HD, often patients have such hard times swallowing that they'll like, they won't be eating, like just mechanically, it's so hard for them to eat. And then they get a feeding tube. And, you know, some of my neurological colleagues have said that like families really see that as a bad thing, but they see it as sometimes a good thing because it, it will, the person will not just start, you know, stop losing weight and stuff, but they'll also like improve neurologically. So I think like keeping a healthy body and, um, and eating properly is, 
is a really worthwhile, you know, arrow in the quiver when it comes to trying to deal with HD right now. I wanted to point out one thing too about the feeding tube. So one of the things I didn't know is they don't have to be um, permanent. So like they offered a temporary one for us for dad. And I think that's something that as people are looking at health and HD, um, instead of this cut and dry, okay, what are your decisions? Um, realize that there is a middle ground now that there is this temporary until you feel better and start performing better because dad was very much I'm sorry if you hear my kids um, they're running up the hallway um, my dad very much um, like he had a surgery got really bad and it took his brain about a year to recover and it was like it that was like a light switch it was like he came back and all of a sudden he can, could perform things he couldn't before um, for a whole year, like we were dressing him, bathing him, and then all of a sudden he could do it again. So mm. knowing that you can temporarily use something in a, in a situation like that where they're struggling, but um, like I thought it was the end, but it wasn't. He had, you know, a few more good years in him. Um, it was good to know that there's, there's that option too, to stay healthy. Um, yeah, and I, I think people, there's obviously like a stigma and it's, it, right? it, yeah, and it feels like this irreversible thing, like, oh, God, they're going on a feeding tube, this is the end, but it might actually give them more function than they had when you were making that decision. We we had the opposite thing with my mom. She had a she had a hospital-acquired infection, and she had a drug interaction that, so her HD went, like, got three times worse, almost literally overnight, over a week, um, and it was not HD progression. HD doesn't progress that fast, and, but we couldn't figure out what's going on and they weren't she was in a new nursing home and they wouldn't put a feeding tube in her because she had a dnr and they said we won't do it and they wouldn't give her artificial water or food and and she passed away that night and she probably would have lived longer had she had proper you know hydration and nutrition so it can make a big difference and it's worth paying attention to yeah absolutely the other thing that we did with dad was um was making sure that i kept trying to get him to stand up and walk um, to not just sit there so he wouldn't waste away and he'd continue to use the muscles and stuff. So I think as we get more information about how HD does affect the rest of the body, all of that plays a role, right? And it's just so interesting. So I'll be glad to hear how you guys um, share that news when it does become available. I know that it's a ways, a ways off, but it's always nice to find hope in something. Um, so yeah, but um, do you guys have any final thoughts for HD community before we hop off? No, I think, um, you know, learn about all this cool science. Don't, don't overstress about, about peripheral issues in, in your loved ones, but do pay a lot of attention to their health. And next time you see me, ask me if I actually joined a gym and started exercising because I'm supposed to be doing that <laughs> yeah, now. Me too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I would echo that. Like, stay informed. It's important to know what's going on, but don't dwell on the things you can't change, right? Like, there's so much science going on right now and some of it might be conflicting. So try not to pay attention to like the really small details, but the overall picture is that we're, we're charging forward and we're making progress and that's what's important and that's what everyone should pay attention to. I'm gonna bring up one other thing to you guys that I forgot to bring up and that is in relation to, you know, when we see failures in um, clinical trials um, or setbacks, really. It's not necessarily a failure, but a setback. And um, being that you're both directly affected and, and part of the community, more so than researchers, um, 
how do you feel about it? Like, what, it, what are your thoughts on when we have a setback? So honestly, I've decided I'm no longer going to use the word failure. I have rebranded <laughs> failures as pivots <laughs> because I think um, it's like any experiment, right? Like no experiment is a true failure. You're always learning something. It's just what direction it takes you. You might have thought it would take you left, but really you're going to go right. And so I think um, it's really easy, obviously, when you're like putting so much stake in these trials to see it as a failure, but really, truly, we've learned a lot. Um, and if you just look at how many clinical trials were going on four or five years ago, there was one, right? There was one. And now we have like eight of them that are giving different talks and different drugs that they're moving forward. And they're all very different drugs. These aren't like identical iterations of each other. And so um, I think a lot of those learned from the initial one, right? Like which a lot of people might view as a failure. So how can it be viewed as a failure when it's gotten us here? It's just kind of a pivot point that we used as a jumping off point. So I would caution people, like, don't think of these things as failures. Think of them um, we didn't learn what we thought we would learn. And so we're taking that information and going a different direction. Yeah. And I, I, I echo that. And I think, I think that's a very smart thing to do. I do think, you know, sometimes, sometimes the news is just hard and like the last year and a bit with, with, with the multiple failures for multiple different reasons of some hunting some lowering drugs that we were all really excited about. Oh, I said failure, Sarah, sorry. Pivots. The pivots. <laughs> Uh, you know, those have been, it's been challenging. It's challenging. They've kind of come one after the other. And it's, as a scientist, I know that they're, they're, it, it, they're different problems. So it, from the outside, I can imagine people looking at this and being like, oh, the main thing everybody's working on is failing. It's not going to work. But each of these trials has, has pivoted for a different reason. And there's not a consistent message that, for example, Huntington lowering is a bad idea. We just don't know that yet. Like, so we're, each of those pivots really is pushing into new trials. So, so Tom and Nurse and the ASO, which was the largest and most advanced of these programs um, that, that, that pivoted in the last little while, um, you know, they, they're, they're launching a new trial with the drug to try lower doses and different dosing regimes. And, and Tom and Nurse and those people are like heroes. They literally taught the world how to dose people safely with ASOs. Um, and unfortunately it didn't have the outcome for them that they wanted, but people looked at the scans of their brains and the inflammation in their spinal fluid and they figured out, okay, the people who got this, maybe, maybe that was too much or too fast. And so now we know that there's this narrower band of dose that's that's probably the right band to hit. And they're doing that. And they're going to rerun a trial or almost almost just about to start it. So it really is a learning thing, but but it I I just have to acknowledge that it's it's depressing and and hard when it doesn't go the way that you want. And you know, I feel the same way, but you know, I think we all have to just decide with what we do with the time we have. And I've just tried to decide to use these downtimes as, you know, an excuse to dig in and push further and keep going. And, and you know, to the extent that you can do it, I think it's great. Um, and at some point you can't, and maybe you just need to unplug and think about something else for a while. And that's okay too. Oh, thank you for that. I really um, appreciate both perspectives. And from now on, I will not say failure. I will say pivot. Um, yeah. I love that. So thank you guys so much for coming on. Um, for those listening, please make sure to tune in next week. And we've uh, got uh, Help for HD Symposium coming up in just a few weeks, which is looking really exciting. Um, Seth, BJ, and I will actually be there and presenting as well um, about 
you know, basically the FDA stuff that we've been working on. But um, but make sure to come out. It's in Nashville. Uh, if you want more information, go to help4hd.org, um, help and then the number 4hd.org. Um, or you can contact me at Lauren at help4hd.org. Um, thank you again, guys. We will continue to have HD Buzz monthly shows. I think they're extremely helpful. And you guys are such, um, you're so good at just breaking it down and explaining it. And um, I really appreciate you guys. So, happy to be thanks, here. Lauren. thanks, Lauren. Great to be here. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to visit www.help4hd.org and sign up for our email newsletter to stay up to date on all that is going on at Help for HD. Get social with us and like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, and subscribe to Help for HD TV on YouTube and ring the bell for notifications.